Anybody going to be left? I read the other day where a pastor said he was going to stand up this morning and say, since you all got an extra hour, I'm going to take an extra hour. I hope he enjoys his last day. Looking again at Philippians, if you'd like to take a Bible, which I hope you will, and turn to page 980 in these Bibles in the pews. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we observe the Lord's Supper here about once a month, and it's a special time, and we try to uh, lead the service up to that. And I will remind you that on the days we have the Lord's Supper, at the end, as we exit, uh, there'll be deacons there with offering plates and we take up an offering that, that typically is used in some relief effort, typically to help members of our congregation, may have medical bills, loss of a job, something like that. Uh, and if that need is not pressing, we use it with uh, like the hurricane in Florida most recently and other natural disasters that happen to give toward that end. So I wanted to remind you of that now. We come to Philippians as we're going through this and today I want to read beginning in verse 19 through verse 26. Just remind you that Paul is writing this from a, a Roman prison. He's writing back to these, this church in the city of Philippi uh, that he planted uh, some 10 years before. This is not his first communication with them, uh, but it's a very, very important one. So he writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us, you give us your word for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. May you use it toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a very cold January morning in 1848 when a man named James Marshall rose very early to walk along the gravel bar by the sawmill that he had built by John's, for John Sutter. As he walked, he looked down into the water and about six inches beneath the smooth surface, he saw a yellow lump sitting on a flat rock. He rolled up his sleeve, he reached in the water and he picked it up. It was about the size and shape of a nickel and it was gold and shiny, but it wasn't sparkling and it was heavy. It was unusual among the rounded stones in the river. He thought it might be gold, but he wasn't sure, so he decided to test it. He put the lump on a smooth rock, picked up another rock, and then he hit the lump. And instead of breaking, it changed shape. 
because it was soft. Thus was the action that began what became known as the California Gold Rush in 1848 to 1849. It may surprise you to know that in 1848, when that happened that I just told you about, San Francisco only had a population of about 459 people. But one year later, it was more than 25,000. If you've seen pictures from that time, you've seen where all the ships were just left there in uh, the bay in San Francisco that had come from around the world. And so for the next several years after he found that gold, thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all over the world would travel to California in hopes of finding gold. And most obviously had hopes of becoming rich. But very few did. Only a, a small, small portion of those who came looking for gold actually found it. And the others had their hopes dashed, and they returned back to their homes as poor or poorer than when they had left, because their hopes were not fulfilled. The Apostle Paul was a man of hope. Now, we know Paul, the Apostle Paul is not our example. That is Christ. And yet we see here an example of a sinful man, a sinful person like you and me, of God working in his life. So we don't hold the Apostle Paul up as, as a model uh, human. We hold him up as a model uh, believer uh, who God is working in and we can see what he's doing in his life even when he was in prison not knowing whether Caesar would release him or when he heard his case or whether he would um, condemn him. So he's writing, as I said, it's been about 10 years since he started the church. So if you've been a Christian for about 10 years, you may can put yourself in the place of those who were reading this for the first time. And I want us to see some of the basis of Paul's hope as we prepare to come to the Lord's table that looks back to what Christ did, that looks forward to what Christ will do. What is our hope? Because that was the exact same situation the Apostle Paul found himself in at that time. We see that if you and I are to have hope, we have to be confident that God will not let us down. In verse 20, which we read, and when he said, uh, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit uh, of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Uh, Paul had confidence that God would be at work, that he would not let him down. What is it to be ashamed? Why does he say that? I will never be ashamed when he's talking about God working. Well, when someone else lets you down, it may mean that you cannot fulfill what you have promised. So there's a domino effect and you then um, feel ashamed about it. Can you remember a time that someone let you down? Maybe you told someone that you would be at a certain place at a certain time and then the person you were depending on to get you there didn't fulfill that and you then in a sense were ashamed saying I'm sorry I, I'm sorry I just couldn't make it well even in prison Paul had confidence that the Lord would work in him whatever you are facing God will not abandon you and you can have confidence that he will fulfill his word secondly if you and I are to have hope we must be committed to honoring Christ as we just read in verses 20 and 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In Galatians 
I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So to live is Christ, when he makes that statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain, to live is Christ means to live in dependence on him. It means to rely on him, to honor him, to be directed by him. And he says, in so doing, he would magnify. He said, I want God to be magnified or honored in my body. It's the same word. The ESV says honored. Many other translations, like the King James, say magnified. When I was a young boy, I would go to the, my grandparents' house, uh, my father's parents. And my grandfather had a safe. And that was just, it was like... Uh, C.S. Lewis's wardrobe and the line of witch in the wardrobe. Uh, that it just was filled with mysterious things to me. I could open it up and, and there were all sorts of items. But one that I remember among the others was a, a big, real magnifying glass. I say real, it wasn't plastic. It wasn't some cheap thing you find in a toy store. It had a wooden handle, it had a steel band, and then the glass seemed to be, in my recollection, about that big. And it, it would really magnify. So here was a leaf. You could take that and, and suddenly the leaf became much, much bigger. It made the leaf grow, right? No. The leaf stayed the same size. The magnifying glass magnified it. It made it larger. When you and I, when Paul here talks about magnifying the Lord, we don't make God bigger. We don't add to the essence of who he is. We don't add to his being. We bring him into view clearer. That's what he's saying. Well, primarily, where do we do that? Primarily, where is God magnified? Where is God glorified? We could say, well, God can be glorified in architecture or in, or in art or in music or in a variety of ways or in in uh, deeds of mercy and, and good deeds that people would see and glorify your Father in heaven, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But primarily, the Bible tells us God is glorified in our bodies. We honor him with our eyes, with our tongues, with our speech, with our thoughts. So in 1 Corinthians 6, when it says you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body, or therefore magnify God with your body through surrendered lives. That's how we magnify him the most. Are you magnifying God in your, in your thoughts, in, in your words, in your actions? Well, even in prison, the Apostle Paul, by God's grace, was doing that in his life because God gave him hope in the midst of what would appear to many of us a hopeless situation. The third thing we notice is if you and I are to have hope, we must be confident in the promise of heaven. If you're not a believer here today, if you're a skeptic, if you're not a believer in Christ, I mean, if you're, if you're a skeptic, if I was an atheist, one thing that would gnaw at me, among others, not only the fine-tuning of the universe and things like that, but why is it that history shows us pretty much all cultures have an instinctive longing for immortality? Let me give you some examples. You find that longing for immortality 
especially in almost all ancient and in modern religions, whether it was a religion of the ancient Babylonian and Assyrians with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of the oldest literature in the world is found in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, in which belief in immortality is a very prominent feature. The Egyptians believed that the soul could not enjoy immortality unless the body itself was preserved. The huge pyramids, the careful practice of embalming the dead show to what great lengths they went to preserve the body for the return of the spirit. In India, in Hinduism and Brahmanism, they reveal a clear belief in immortality. Buddhism, which was a later development from Hinduism, introduced the idea of transmigration of souls or reincarnation. In the ancient Greek religions, there was belief in many gods and a future life. A silver coin was placed in the mouth of the corpse to pay that corpse's fare across the mystic river. In Rome, the worshipers of Jupiter and Minerva look forward to the shadowy realm of the dead. And their Elysian fields in China and Japan, belief in immortality ancient, what, took the form of ancestor worship in ancient days. The Native American Indians placed within the grave of the departed a bow and arrow, and sometimes even a pony, that the dead might have these when they reach the happy hunting grounds. My point is there is something hardwired into each of us that longs for and knows that there must be more than just this life. There must be life after death. Does that prove it? No, of course not. But it's interesting that almost all cultures have that in some fashion or form. Well, here's what the Bible says. The body says that every person is a body and a soul. You have a body, obviously, but you also have a soul. Your body one day will die unless Christ comes again first. It may be this week. It may be 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. That body will die, but your soul will never die. It will live forever. And that's why Christ, Christ urged us, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one, speaking of God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, can hell be avoided? Yes. Now, there's an interesting image here in verse 23. When the Apostle Paul, it, there he is in prison, and he's pondering whether he'll live or die. That's what this is all about, this, this paragraph. And he says, to live is Christ, to glorify Christ, but to die as a believer, as a Christian, is gain. But he says, I'm hard-pressed. I'm hard-pressed whether I want to continue living or dying. It wasn't a death wish. He's not suicidal. He's looking in the face of reality that he may be condemned to die. He may be executed, which he was not this time around, but later. But he doesn't know it at this time. He doesn't know that he's going to be released. And he's thinking about, well, if I die, that's better because I go to be with Christ. But if I live on, that allows me to continue to minister. It's better for your sake, he says. But what I want to draw your attention to is in verse 23 when he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
that idea of depart is fascinating. And it had various uses in, at this time in history. Sometimes it referred to the sailing of a ship that would weigh anchor and depart one destination going toward another. Sometimes it referred to Roman soldiers breaking camp, saying, okay, break camp. In five minutes, we are leaving and we are, we're not coming back here. In every idea, in every instance, I should say, it communicated the idea of leaving something permanently behind. So when he says, I have the desire to depart, he means to leave this life for another place. He's suggesting that the Christians break camp, but where do we go? We go to be with Jesus. When I was a child, my family only moved once that I recall from one house to another. We moved from Montgomery, Alabama to Gadsden, Alabama, which at that time was about two hours away. I never saw the house we were moving to until the day we arrived. But my father and mother would talk to me and my sister and they would show us Polaroid pictures of the vacant house. And my mother would draw out the floor plan and she would say, here's the kitchen. And we were fascinated that in this kitchen there was going to be a, a pass-through window where the food could be passed through to go to the dining room that was right there where the table was. So over and over, almost daily, I would ask my mother, will you draw the picture? Tell me now, now this, which room's going to be my bedroom? Uh, and it had a swimming pool behind it. Now for a child, I mean, that, it, it was unimaginable. There was only one problem. The swimming pool was damaged and would not hold water, but they didn't tell us that. So I never got to swim in that pool, but it was a, anyway, I still could dream about these things. Why? And I read something by Randy Alcorn in his excellent book on heaven, when he talks about the need to anticipate and think even daily about heaven and what it will be like because Jesus comforted his disciples by describing, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And he talked to them about the specifics. Here's what Randy Alcorn, one of the things he wrote in his book on heaven. He says, imagine you are part of a NASA team preparing for a five-year mission to Mars. After a period of extensive training, the launch date finally arrives. As the rocket lifts off, one of your fellow astronauts says to you, what do you know about Mars? Imagine shrugging, your soldiers, so imagine shrugging your shoulders and saying, nothing. We never talked about it. I guess we'll find out when we get there. And Randy says, it's unthinkable, isn't it? It's inconceivable that your training would not have included extensive study of and preparation for your ultimate destination. To our own demise, we don't talk about and think about the specifics of heaven enough. It's almost like, Lord, show me the, show me the floor plan again. To be filled with anticipation, and that's how Paul is able to face death. That's how he's able to say to die is gain. And he also declares that the death for the Christian is far better. By far the best, he says. So, Death for the Christian, no one wants to think about the process of, of dying, 
but the destination of where I am going. Here's the comparison. It's not better than your worst day. It's better than your best day. Sometimes when you have a, maybe you're going through a very, very difficult time, everything looks dark, you may be in despair, you may be depressed, and you think death would be better than life. You don't tell anybody, but those thoughts cross your mind. And maybe they last for days or weeks, and then things change and you quit thinking that way. You know what this is saying? Imagine your best day. Imagine the, most, the happiest day of your life. For me, it was my wedding day with Barbara. On that day, saying death would be better than life. Now, the point is not to denigrate the greatest things in this life. That's how heaven is seen. It's better than anything you can imagine or have experienced in this life. It will be better. It will be better. Now, these thoughts can bring us joy, even in the midst of not knowing whether he's going to live or die. Verses 25 and 26, and I'll move to conclude this. If we're to have hope, we must be confident in the plan of God. He knew God had him there. That's clear. I won't reread the verses now. And he hoped to come again and see them, but he was confident uh, that God had his plan and was working it out in his life. He knew God had him in prison. We saw that last week, uh, two weeks ago. The whole Praetorian Guard, the whole Imperial Guard now had been evangelized, basically, because of him being in prison. He saw that. So don't be discouraged if in the midst of your present struggles, you see little reward because you have confidence, yes, God has me here. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to conclude this sermon, and I want to, I want to paraphrase a few thoughts from an excellent little book by Derek Thomas. Derek is a pastor of a First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's, he's preached here years ago. And it's called Heaven on Earth, What the Bible Teaches About the Life to Come. And I was looking through this, but what caught my attention was the postscript. And so I wrote, I rewrote it, I paraphrased it, and I made it briefer to read to you right now. These are some thoughts from his postscript. Heaven is the Bible's word for sky, which is one reason we tend to think of heaven as up there. But heaven is more than simply being above. The former physics student in me likes to think of it as a parallel universe. I happen to share that opinion with him. Heaven exists somewhere. It is where the body of Jesus is right now. Heaven is a location in space. It's tangible. It's real. It's physical. Well, how then should we think about heaven? First, we should think of it as a perfect place. Try and imagine life, physical life, mental life without sin. What is a mind free from the impediments of sin capable of achieving? What affections and emotions are possible? Secondly, we, try, we need to try and imagine a world without pain and disease and death. Third, heaven is where we dream and grow and play and work along with all re the redeemed. Whatever our occupation in heaven, there will be maximum satisfaction enjoyment and pleasure of the kind we have only glimpsed here and now. 
There will be laughter. There will be accomplishment. There will be fulfillment. Being who we were made to be, achieving our full potential, and discovering a contentment that is full of wonder is what heaven is about. And in its final form, heaven is a new earth. Mountains, oceans, rivers, lakes, forests, sandy beaches, birds, fish, animals of every kind. All God's creation now restored for us to explore and investigate and try to understand. That means that science and travel and composition and art and music and poetry, all that is pure and lovely and good, new talents to learn, new experiences to enjoy, and all of it forever and ever. The greatest experience of heaven will be to gaze on Jesus' beautiful face. As it says in Revelation 22, they will see his face to look at him with tears of joy and say, thank you, thank you, and to bow in worship and praise and adoration and sing his praises. Do you have that hope? Is your faith today in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer? Have you understood that all of us are sinners and our sin deserves death, and yet God sent his Redeemer, the substitute, to take our sin upon him to die in our place? And now by faith in him, we have new life in the promise of heaven.